Thank you, Steve. Well, as we begin the main message, let's uh, pause for prayer. Lord, it's not in us to be able to read this book and to understand fully what it says and what it teaches, but we know that you have sent the Holy Spirit starting on the day of Pentecost to provide that help for us. And we will learn much the more we study, and we are here to study today. So Lord, help us to not only understand with our minds, but understand with our hearts what you've prepared for us in the book of Zechariah today. So thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been going through a series, as you all know, of sermons on the minor prophets, 12 men who prophesied so long ago, centuries and centuries and millennia ago. But we have been finding that all of these messages in each of these books pertains to us in some way. So we're going to turn to the book of Zechariah, that, of course, the second last book of the Old Testament. And this man was a prophet as well, very similar to the previous prophet, Haggai, who prophesied just as the people of Judah were leaving captivity and going back to their land, Judah, uh, Jerusalem. In fact, Zechariah was one, as Haggai was, was one of the people who was actually in the prisoner camps and was released at some point in time and returned back to uh, their homeland. Now, there are so many themes and prophecies in this book, it was a little overwhelming to, to just pick one. For example, some of the famous scriptures in this book, Zechariah 9, verse 9, talks about the first coming of Jesus. We usually turn to this passage around the time of Palm Sunday, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that's how Jesus entered in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, just shortly before his death. And of course, we could turn to Zechariah 14, because here it talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Zechariah 14, beginning in verse 3, it talks about uh, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, and so on and so forth. It talks about the day of the Lord. And some have been confused because they, you know, in Jesus' day, they thought the Messiah was going to come with power, but he came riding on a donkey. <laughs> so there was confusion. We have to understand exactly what's being talked about here. We know that in Acts chapter 1, it talks when, uh, the, when Jesus ascended up to heaven, the angel appeared and told the apostles who were looking up into the sky, don't you know that this one is going to return in the same way he departed? And he departed from the Mount of Olives, so he's going to return to the Mount of Olives. So right there, you've got two total themes, the first and second coming of Jesus. But perhaps the most important prophecy in the book, I think, is found in Zechariah chapter 13. We'll turn there now. Because it's about the gospel. And it's a prophecy about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross to bring about forgiveness of sin. It says in Zechariah 13, verse 1, 
on that day, and of course he's looking forward into the future, what would happen during Jesus' earthly ministry, on that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Now what is this fountain? It's talking about a water fountain. Water, of course, was very important to people in Israel back in the day, and even to this day today, because there's not a whole lot of water available. We live in this wonderful area, in this wonderful country, where we have five great lakes of clean drinking water, but not so in this part of the world. So a fountain is very important, a spring or a well or whatever the case may be, and it always has been important in the history of God's people. But here, a fountain or a spring bringing forth water was also essential, not just for drinking, but for ceremonial washings in the Old Testament to symbolize cleansing people from sin. So way back when God originated his nation, Israel, he gave them a lot of laws, rules, and regulations, and a lot of them involved washing yourself, not just to clean the dirt off your body, but it's symbolic. For example, priests, when they were ordained, they were washed with water. Levites were sprinkled with water. The high priest on the Day of Atonement, before he went into the Holy of Holies, had to go through a special washing ceremony. People, when they became defiled, somehow had to wash themselves ceremonially. And this was to symbolize something that was going to happen in the future. So, you know, we take for granted washing ourselves when we get dirtier or when we feel sweaty. This was a different kind of washing. This washing symbolized the removal of impurities, the removal of sin from yourself. So that when John the Baptist finally came on the scene and he started baptizing people, everybody was okay with that. They kind of understood what he was doing and what that baptism symbolized. So he'd take them down to the river and hold their nose and put them under water and bring them back up. It was a baptism to repentance. And they got that point. Yeah, I, I need to be washed of my sins somehow. And we, when we become Christians, what happens to us? Well, we're told in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, the people said, after Peter preached the gospel, what shall we do? And he said, what? Repent and be baptized, all of you, for the forgiveness of sins. So we, all of us who are full-fledged Christians, have been baptized as well. I know I have. But you know what? Although these washings with water were required by the law, they were intended by God to only symbolize something that Jesus would do for us. Because just a washing with water itself, the ceremony, doesn't forgive your sins. I think we all understand that. What brings about the total forgiveness of our sins, that was done by Jesus on the cross. He provided the true spiritual cleansing for us that only he could do. And that's what Zechariah is referring to here in verse 1 when he says, On that day a fountain will be opened. God is going to provide something for everybody through his son, Jesus Christ. And this is going to be a washing that fully and completely 
will not just be a ceremony, but it will be a washing away of our sins, if you will. And really what this fountain is going to be is Jesus shed blood on the cross. Now, I think that we know that when we're baptized, it's not just the washing with water. It's not just the going underwater for an instant that actually cleanses us of sin and forgives our sin. Those washings are a symbol for us too. It's good that we do it. We're told to do it, we're commanded to do it, and it kind of teaches us a physical lesson of a spiritual reality. The water doesn't wash away our sins, Jesus' death on the cross washes away our sins. So this new fountain is going to be opened by God through his son Jesus Christ because all of the other fountains or, or bodies of water throughout the old covenant were insufficient. The scripture tells us that no animal sacrifice or washing could make amends for sins. They were only shadows of what Jesus was going to do. They were only symbolic of what Jesus would eventually do. The only fountain that could bring about the forgiveness of sin was the pierced side of Jesus on the cross. Remember in John 19, verse 34, I think that the Apostle John, when he wrote his gospel, he specifically mentioned this. John 19 and verse 34, it talks about Jesus' crucifixion and his death on the cross. And there were three of them that were crucified, Jesus and two thieves or criminals on either side of him. And the time came for the soldiers to come by to make sure that they were all dead. It said, uh, verse 33 of John 19, but when they came to Jesus and found that he had, was already dead, they did not break his legs as was the custom. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And I always thought, that's weird. Why did that happen? And John makes it a point to specifically mention that because he's mentioning this fountain <laughs> that God was going to provide, a new fountain, not just of water that you could ceremonially wash yourself in, but this is a truly healing fountain that came forth from Jesus through his death, through his sacrifice on the cross, because there he paid the price and the penalty for each of our sins. So here, Zechariah is prophesying far into the future to these people re returning from captivity, and he's saying to them, listen, you've been involved in the law all these years, all these centuries, with your washings for this and washings for that. That's good. Fulfill the law. Do what the law tells you to do. But there's coming another kind of washing, the real McCoy. And it's going to be provided for you by God through his son, Jesus Christ. So these people did not know Jesus. This is still future for them. And Zechariah is prophesying what is going to happen. And furthermore, he's going to get into a few more details about this whole fountain and who this person is going to be. I'll ask you the question, how does this fountain cleanse? How does it cleanse? Well, here in Zechariah 3, let's look there. Zechariah chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. 
This is what he said about this fountain and who it would represent and what it would be. Zechariah 3, beginning in verse 8. He says, listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I am going to bring my servant. So this is a prophecy of the coming of Jesus. God says, I am going to bring my servant, the branch, capital B. That's one of the names for Jesus Christ. Because there was a prophecy by another prophet who said he's going to grow up as a tender branch. He's going to be born as a child, grow up as a young man, kind of a flexible branch, young man. He says, see the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. He says, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. So it's a prophecy about Jesus. He's referred to as a branch, a man that God was going to send, turned out to be his, his son, his literal son, Jesus Christ, the word. And this man was going to be able to accomplish in one day the removal of sin of the whole land. And that was accomplished by Jesus when he died on the cross. That one act, that one sacrifice was, like I said, the real thing that all of the millions of animals sacrificed over the course of the Old Testament just symbolized. All of the washings, all of the animals sacrificed at the temple throughout centuries by the Israelites, those things only symbolize what Jesus would accomplish on one day, in one moment, to forgive the sins of all the land, and as we know it, all the world. So that's what this, this is prophesying. Now let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, because uh, the author of Hebrews has a lot to say about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And he compares it to the whole Old Testament and the Levitical system and how that was so inferior to what Jesus accomplished by one act on one day. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 1. So this chapter is making a comparison. The whole history of ancient Israel, the Levitical system, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the washings, compared to what Jesus accomplished in one act on one day and how he is so much superior. He says in verse 1 of Hebrews 10, the law, the whole Old Testament time, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming not the realities themselves. So the law, yeah, they had to keep it. They had to sacrifice the animals, offer the offerings, but it was all symbolic. It wasn't the real deal. He goes on to say, for this reason, it, the whole Old Testament, with all the laws and sacrifices, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeatedly and repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. It was commanded, yes. Every time you sinned or broke the law, you had to bring your animal to the temple and have the priest kill it. You offered this animal uh, as a sacrifice for your sins. 
But you know what? It never really forgave the sins. It was a custom that you followed. It was a practice that was commanded of you. But it was only a symbol looking forward to something in the future that would happen. Verse 2, if it could, if sacrifices could really bring about forgiveness of sins, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So all of those sacrifices were fine. They were commanded. But you know what? They were for naught. They were just looking forward to Jesus' death on the cross. Pick it up in verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, himself on the cross, crucified on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So that's talking about the superiority of Jesus Christ over the whole Old Testament priesthood and the whole Old Covenant for that matter. Jesus is superior. His sacrifice is superior. It is the real thing that all the Old Testament only symbolized. And did you ever read that verse 14 and consider that this refers to you? You personally. Let's read this again. Because by one sacrifice, he, Jesus, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Wow. That's, that is humbling that the author of this book is talking about those who accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, become Christians. He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's us. We are being made holy. God is doing the work. And we are being made, he has made us perfect. We're forgiven. Once you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, once you humble yourself and repent and accept Jesus as your personal Savior, in God's sight, in spite of the fact that you still stumble from time to time and sin, God looks at you as totally forgiven of all of your sins, past, present, and future, and it's almost hard to read this because I know this is applying to me, but I don't always feel it. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That is, that is humbling, and that is, it, it applies to us. That's how powerful Jesus' death on the cross was. That is how merciful and grace-filled God is toward us. One sacrifice on one day for all humanity for all time. That's what Jesus' death on the cross was. So he died for the whole world, but 
there's something required of us. What is it? Well, back here to Zechariah. Like I said a little bit earlier, it requires us to believe. It requires us to humble ourselves and repent and admit that we need a Savior. And that's hard for some people to do. I don't know, I think most of us in this room right here today, we apologize <laughs> frequently. You know, just in my conversations with you, if, if most of you ever think that you've ever done anything wrong or offended somebody, you're quick to apologize. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, you know when I said that to you earlier, I didn't really mean the way it came out, and please, please forgive me. Or, you know, if you bump into somebody, oh, I'm sorry, you know, please forgive me. I think that's the kind of people that most of us tend to be, but not all people are like that. There are a lot of people that I know who don't ever, ever want to admit when they've made a mistake, and they'll make every kind of excuse they can because they have this image of themselves, and they dare not lower this image that they have. They always want to appear to be something great in other people's eyes, but that's not the kind of people that, that we need to be or we should be. We should be quick to see our shortcomings and to admit them, especially when it comes to our relationship with God. Zechariah 12, beginning in verse 10, notice what it says here. Again, another prophecy. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. And I think sometimes it takes God's help to get to this point. He says, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great like the weeping of Hadad-Rimon and the plains of Megiddo. So I think it takes God's help for us to come to the point in our life where we repent where we realize that we're not as great a person as we thought we were, that we have hurt other people by our actions and our sins, and we've certainly uh, come short of what God expected of us. But see, we all have to come to the point in our life where we readily admit that. That's where you come to see that you need a Savior, that you're a sinner, and if nothing else happens to change that, you're doomed to be punished eternally for your sins because the wages of sin is death, the Bible says. So God has to somehow inspire us or encourage us or urge us to come to the point where we realize we need help. It's like Pastor Bill was saying, the little squirrel's knocking on the door. It's God knocking on the door saying, hey, you know, you're not the person that you think you are. You desperately need help. You're on death row because of your sins. And I'm here and I'm available and I've got just the exact thing that you need. Forgiveness of your sins. A Savior who died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. All you have to do is admit that you're a sinner and that you need a Savior. And when you do that, you are granted total and complete forgiveness of your sins. Not because you've earned it, but by the grace of God. And how can God do that? Well, that's the kind of God that we, we have. That He is. That is what He is all about. But what is required of us? 
as Peter said on the day of Pentecost, when the people heard the gospel and they said, brothers, what shall we do based on what you just told us? The Son of God died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Peter said, repent, repent, and be baptized. And also we're told to believe the gospel, to believe that this is really reality, that God does exist, and that he loves this world so much that he sent his one and only son to be an atoning sacrifice for us. And every time we look at that cross up there, we think of what he did for us. He didn't have to. He did it willingly. And what are we called to do? To believe, to repent, to be baptized. And as soon as we do that, that full coverage of grace comes upon us. It is that fountain that Zechariah prophesied that was not just going to be a ceremony, but was going to provide complete and total healing. You know, Jesus many times talked about living waters. Remember, he was talking to the Samaritan woman, and the woman was concerned about the well and getting some uh, water from the well. And Jesus said, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd ask for living water, which I can provide. He is the source he is the source of salvation. He and he alone is the source of what we need. But you know, in this prophecy here in Zechariah chapter 12, Zechariah is prophesying that the Jews, because he's speaking to the Jews in this prophecy, that it's going to be the Jews who are going to pierce and kill someone. But they will ultimately be convicted of their sin and repent. As we read here in Zechariah 12, verses 10 and 11, it says, They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. So it's talking about a general time of repentance on the part of the Jewish people. Now, I don't know if that has come yet. I don't think it has. Some of them repented on the day of Pentecost. It said 3,000 were baptized on that day. But I don't know if that's the total fulfillment of that. Could there yet be a future great revival amongst the Jewish people before Jesus Christ returns? Some of the other apostles talked about there being hope for the Jews. Hope for the Jews. Now, I personally don't know of many people who were convicted, convicted, uh, converted to Christianity from Judaism. There have been people. But this seems to be talking about a greater time. Turn with me to Romans 11, beginning in verse 25. Romans 11 and verse 25. Notice what the Apostle Paul says about the Jews. He held out hope for the Jews, too, that there would be a great return and a belief in Jesus Christ as, as their Savior as well. He says in Romans 11, verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So it seems to be talking about a revival amongst the Jewish people, that God is going to help them at some point come to see that this 
Jesus, whom they crucified, truly was the Messiah that they expected. One other scripture in 2 Corinthians 3. It talks about the Jews as having a veil over their eyes when it comes to realizing who Jesus truly is. They thought that he was just a rabbi, just a uh, wise man, a teacher, certainly. But they didn't accept him, for the most part, as the Son of God and the one to bring salvation. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 13. He says, we are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. That was shortly after he received the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai and came back down to the people. He was glowing from being in the presence of God. It says in verse 14, but their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. As Steve just saying a little while ago. And we, we believers, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Because we have been forgiven of our sins. Why? Because we've repented and expressed our need for a Savior. And we've asked Jesus to be that Savior. And he is. And all of your sins have been wiped away. You live in a, a state of forgiveness. That doesn't mean we're free to go out and sin like mad now. No, of course not. That's crazy. But we have the assurance, we have the promise of God, we have the word of God that this is the state that we live in. Why? Not because of anything we've done to deserve it, but because of the grace of God. And there have been many a times where I've thought to myself, God, the creator of the universe. Why is he even concerned about us? Why would he go through such trouble to save us? That's the kind of God he is. I'm, I, I'm not his counselor. As Job was asked, are you the counselor of God? Are you going to tell him what he should do and what makes sense to you? No. That's his nature and that's the kind of God he is. And he has done all of this for us free of charge, all we're asked to do is to humble ourselves to the point that we realize we need help and we ask him for that help and he provides it for us freely. And furthermore, he gives us the promise that we're going to live with him for all eternity and get to know him a lot better and get to enjoy him and appreciate him all the more. This is the God that we worship. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this word from Zechariah, this uh, gospel that he prophesied and foretell, and how awesome it is, how humbling it is for us to be able to enjoy the fruits of this. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son to this earth to be that fountain that is not just symbolic, but it's the real thing. We have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and our sins are forgiven and, and put away forever. 
And we look forward, Lord, to just living this out with you for all eternity, as you've promised we will. Our reward is secure. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. And we owe it all to you. And we'll thank you eternally for that. So, Lord, we ask your blessing on all of us this coming week. Help us to walk in the right way. Help us to, in our lives, reflect your goodness as we interact with other people. Let your grace flow through us to reach out and touch others. We love you, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.